0: Welcome to NTD News Today, I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Missiles hit Ukraine's capital while the head of the United Nations is there. And the US Congress revives a World War II era program to speed up aid to Ukraine. Hundreds of employees at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have not received a COVID vaccine. That makes up about 3% of the agency's workforce. U.S. Secretary of Energy testified on next year's budget proposal. Lawmakers are asking why oil and gas prices are so high and what will be done about it. New York City lawmakers are postponing the implementation of a new law. The law requires job ads to include salary ranges so applicants have a better shot at fair pay. It looks like Ukraine's capital is still a target for Russia. On Thursday, rockets shook the central district in Kyiv. And today's Jessica Beatty has more.
1: Kiev Mayor Vitali Klitschko visited a residential site in the capital Friday, where two missiles struck a day earlier. He says there's risk of further attacks.
2: Uh, Kyiv's still a uh, dangerous place, and uh, this Kiev's st- still the target of Russians. Yes, uh, of course. The capital of Ukraine is the goal uh, and they want to occupy it.
1: Valera Turin was in a nearby building when the two blasts hit. He says he locked himself in the bathroom of his office.
3: The first one struck on that side. It was really loud. I thought it hit somewhere in my office. After about 10 seconds, the second one hit here. I then realized this one was even closer.
1: Ukrainian rescue workers recovered the body of a journalist who worked at Radio Liberty in Kyiv. The U.S. broadcaster, Sedvira Girich was killed after a Russian rocket hit the building she lived in. The death was the first reported in Thursday's missile strike. Although Moscow didn't comment on this incident, Russia did say Friday it destroyed the production facilities of a rocket plant in Kyiv with high-precision long-range missiles. Meanwhile, the U.S. House passed a bill Thursday that will make it easier to export military equipment to Ukraine. Ahead of the vote, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said every minute matters. It's about time. This strong action could mean
4: the difference between
1: lives saved and lives lost. The measure revives a World War II-era program called the Lend-Lease Act. It allowed Washington to lend or lease military equipment to U.S. allies. In this case, it will help those affected by Russia's invasion, such as Ukraine and Poland.
5: It is a real moment in history that that we are back on this House floor supporting Lynn lease
1: Congressman French Hill said he hopes the bill will end delays in shipping aid to Ukraine. The bill already passed the Senate. Now it heads to the White House for President Biden to sign into law. Jessica Beatty, NTD News.
0: Russian President Vladimir Putin has accepted an invitation to the G20 summit in November. That's according to the host of the summit, Indonesian leader Joko Widodo. Widodo also extended an invitation to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who tweeted he was grateful for the invitation. Zelensky did not specify whether he would attend the summit. Earlier this week, Widodo spoke with Putin and Zelensky in separate phone calls. He conveyed to Putin the importance of ending the war in Ukraine immediately and Indonesia's desire to contribute to a peaceful resolution. The G20 summit is scheduled to be held on the Indonesian island of Bali in November. President Biden will make his first trip to Asia since taking office next month. The president will visit South Korea and Japan during his four-day trip beginning May 20th. Officials say Biden will hold bilateral meetings with his counterparts in both countries. You will also attend a gathering with the leaders of Japan, Australia and India. White House officials say the trip is a sign of the president's commitment to the region, even as the crisis in Ukraine garners international attention. War is putting huge pressure on Ukraine's hospitals, especially those near the front lines. In a major hospital in the eastern part of the country, only three surgeons are still working. The doctors say they feel traumatized from treating war-injured patients. And today's Joy Duguid has more.
4: A major hospital in Kramatorsk, eastern Ukraine, is suffering due to the lack of staff after health workers evacuated from the city at the beginning of Russia's invasion. The head of the hospital's surgery department said there are only three surgeons still working.
6: The people who have stayed understand that if we leave, there will be nobody to provide medical support. And a huge number of people will simply die without this support.
4: The town was rocked by an attack on its railway station a few weeks ago, which killed almost 60 people, including seven children. Another 60 were admitted to the hospital in the two hours following the attack. Health workers from other cities arrived in their personal vehicles and tried to help.
6: It is very hard for me, especially after the Ace when I saw the children without arms and the legs. When a boy of 14 years old was dying in my hands, he was delivered to us in a state of clinical death. I don't know if I will ever be able to forget it.
4: While the Russian offensive in the east continues, people tried to flee to the safer regions in the west of the country. Most of them were elderly and some came in wheelchairs, even on stretchers. This man lost his daughter in the war.
2: We were here in the basement, but my daughter didn't manage to come down. At the entrance, she was hit by the shrapnel. We had to bury her in the garden.
4: The United Nations Refugee Commission said the conflict has displaced more than seven million people within Ukraine along with over 5 million who had left as of last week. Another 13 million Ukrainians are believed to be trapped in the war-affected areas. Joy Dugid, NTD News. In the 10 weeks since Russia's war on Ukraine began, nearly
0: 3 million Ukrainians have taken refuge in Poland, among them countless Ukrainian children. In the city of Warsaw, schools were already facing teacher shortages and classroom overcrowding, but the communities are still welcoming Ukrainian children in. Here's more. Yeah.
7: New school, new language, new country.
0: We follow the needs. When we opened these classes, we did not know what would be in a week, what would be in a month.
7: There are now 50 Ukrainian refugees enrolled at this Warsaw High School, bringing the student population up to 700. It's Olena's first day. Laisha is a few weeks in and happy to be back in class.
8: It's given me some uh, space or give me the feeling of uh, safety. That I'm safe here. I'm th- in my normal life. In Warsaw alone, the mayor's office estimates
7: the city has taken in more than 100,000 children, with 17,000 already enrolled in public school. The question now is how many more
9: will come? It's a big problem for us because we don't know how many uh, students um, go to Warsaw and go to our schools.
7: Warsaw was already short 2,000 teachers before Russia invaded Ukraine. The city needs more staff and money.
10: This is a huge challenge for us.
0: A good heart, willingness to help, and volunteering are not enough.
7: And yet, They're finding ways to make it work. Polish students are paired with their new Ukrainian classmates. We use a lot of Google Translate. LOCAL FAMILIES HAVE DONATED SUPPLIES. The school provides breakfast and lunch. In Lviv, Mariana taught German. Officially, she's now a tutor, yet it's clear this mom of three, who also fled the war, is so much more.
1: WE DON'T JUST SPEAK UKRAINIAN, WE SPEAK THE LANGUAGE OF EMOTIONS AND THE LANGUAGE
7: OF WHAT WE'VE GONE THROUGH. COMFORT amidst THE UNCERTAINTY. WHILE THERE ARE MORE SMILES EVERY DAY, THE PRINCIPAL SAYS HE CAN'T FORGET WHAT LIES BENEATH. WHILE SCHOOL IS A WELCOME DISTRACTION, IT'S ALSO A REMINDER OF HOW MUCH THEIR LIVES HAVE CHANGED.
0: Lawmakers questioned President Biden's energy secretary during hearings on Thursday. She was asked about her department's budget request for next year. And TD's Jeremy Sandberg has more.
6: U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm answered questions from committee members in Washington, D.C. in two separate hearings on Thursday. The House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the House Energy Subcommittee asked Granholm about her department's proposed budget for 2023.
11: Under the Biden administration, the Department of Energy is committed to increasing energy security, energy affordability, and energy resilience.
6: Many of the lawmakers asked about the cause of high oil and gas prices and about becoming more energy independent.
12: We were energy independent under the last administration. And we're we not now under the Biden administration. No
6: time. Granholm was also pressed on the Department of Energy's plans to meet commitments made to European allies. Every
11: molecule of natural gas that can be liquefied at a terminal is being liquefied and exported.
6: The energy secretary also discussed renewable energy resources, liquefied natural gas infrastructure, and electric vehicles.
11: I think we can do it all. We can mine for critical minerals here in a responsible way. We can build out the supply chains that are necessary. We can get a uranium stockpile here so that we have energy independence, energy security, and we can also build out clean energy as well.
6: The budget request is close to $50 billion, a near 22% increase from the budget in 2021. It includes $2 billion in funding for a new Undersecretary for Infrastructure and $214 million toward the Office of Clean Energy Demonstrations. In written testimony to the Energy Subcommittee, Granholm said the situation in Ukraine and the impact on gas prices creates a need for massive investment in renewable energy and energy-efficient electric appliances. Granholm said her department is using every tool available to increase oil supply and referenced the release of 180 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve over six months.
3: I believe that this is reckless, it's dangerous, this is a strategic asset. And depleting the reserve risks our energy future. It it adds to emboldening Russia and China.
6: Granholm was asked when reserves would be replenished.
11: Um, I'm telling you, we will be asking. We will be replenishing the reserve. I'm anxious because it the, is important. I'm to anxious to, to see that. the plan.
6: The Biden administration released 50 million barrels from the reserve in November last year and 30 million barrels this March. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.: About 400 employees at the CDC have
0: not received a COVID-19 vaccine. That's according to data obtained by the Epic Times through a Freedom of Information Act request. Specifically, 382 workers at the agency are unvaccinated, and then another nine have gotten just one dose. Collectively, that makes up 3.2% of the health agency's workforce. An officer at the agency said this is the most recent and complete data available. The data is current as of April 12th. The CDC also revealed information on how many employees are fully vaccinated. That number is over 12,000. Fully vaccinated means they received either two doses of the Moderna or Pfizer shots or the single-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Furthermore, about 5,800 employees disclosed that they got a booster, but the CDC said employees don't have to give out that information. The CDC revealed that it had not granted any requests for exemption to President Biden's vaccine mandate. That mandate is set to take effect at the end of May after a court suspended it for months. According to the Epic Times, the CDC media office didn't give an answer as to what would happen to workers who haven't been vaccinated nor received an exemption. It also didn't explain why no exemptions were granted. The outlet sought information past December 2021 for three other health agencies. Those are the FDA, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the NIH, but they did not provide the information requested. The CDC initially did not provide the more recent data that the Epic Times requested, The agency said the data was not available. Then the outlet asked them to clarify, and another officer from the agency said the same thing. Later, the outlet appealed to the Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the CDC. The CDC's media office then changed its stance without giving an explanation. A Freedom of Information Act analyst with HHS said the CDC didn't mean to withhold information, but added he believes that they accidentally omitted it. Two parents in Chicago are suing a school after their 15-year-old son committed suicide this January. The student was allegedly bullied over a false rumor saying he's unvaccinated. The boy's parents, Rose and Robert Bronstein, accused the Latin School of Chicago of willful failure to do anything about the bullying. The boy who committed suicide was vaccinated against COVID-19, but another student allegedly spread a false rumor saying he was unvaccinated. The parents say both they and their son had contacted school administrators dozens of times about the bullying, but the school turned a blind eye. The school responded to the lawsuit, saying allegations of wrongdoing by school officials are inaccurate and misplaced. The prestigious private school says it will defend itself in court. Just days after Twitter accepted Tesla CEO Elon Musk's offer to purchase the social media firm, a Texas rancher is offering the billionaire 100 acres of land for free to move Twitter to the Lone Star State. Entity's Chenny Wu has the story. With billionaire Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter earlier this week,
9: comes the possibility that the social media company's headquarters could join Musk's other three companies, Tesla, SpaceX, and The Boring Company in Texas. And one Texan rancher has made a proposal supporting that move. Jim Shortner is offering Musk 100 acres of land worth an estimated $10 million for free. He tweeted the offer Tuesday, asking Musk to move the Twitter headquarters to Shortner, Texas, an area 38 miles north of the state's capital, Austin. But why?
12: America's waking up. Uh, I feel a change in the air.
9: Shortner believes that Musk's takeover of Twitter could change the dynamics of this country, saying that less censorship could promote communication and understanding between people from opposite sides of the political spectrum.
12: You may not agree with me, I may not agree with you, but we need to have a dialogue. And so I I just really like what Elon's doing.
9: Texas Governor Greg Abbott tweeted about Shortner's offer, adding that he would declare the area a free speech zone and maybe even rename it Twitter Texas. Shortner adds that the move would promote the economy and support the local community.
12: Uh, it'll take a little work, but uh, this area is growing already and there's a lot of work been done in the last 20 years, so I think we're
0: ready to go.
9: Musk has yet to respond to the offer. Chenny Wu, NTD
0: News. The Department of State says they are witnessing a trend of rising digital authoritarianism with some countries limiting freedom of expression. The United States and more than 60 partners around the world launched the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. The Declaration's principles include a commitment to protect human rights and the free flow of information. The Declaration says the United States and partners plan to work together to promote this vision and its principles globally. Also included is the promotion of an affordable and accessible internet. China and Russia did not join in the declaration. Former President Donald Trump posted his first message on his Truth Social account, signaling a return to social media. Trump shared a photo of himself standing in front of his Mar-a-Lago club in Palm Beach, Florida. He wrote the words, I'm back, and kafefi. The hashtag kafefi refers to a word Trump first posted on Twitter in 2017. He never explained what it meant, and it's still open to interpretation. The short post comes as Elon Musk sealed a $44 billion deal to buy Twitter last week. Twitter banned Trump's personal account and his campaign's account while he was still president in 2021. His own app, Truth Social, was launched in the Apple App Store in February. Trump said at the time that people should get ready to see him soon. Next, we hear some analysis on two topics. One is the DOJ's probe into Hunter Biden's business dealings, and the other is the Biden administration's plan to handle illegal immigration once Title 42 ends. Joining us now is Patrick Basham, who is the founding director of the Democracy Institute. First, I'd like to ask, do you think that the fact that the Justice Department, their probe into Hunter Biden is being led by a Trump appointee, do you think this will lead to a fair investigation?
12: It makes it more likely more probable that the investigation will be fair and balanced. Uh, But as we have experienced in recent times uh, with the FBI and with the Department of Justice, um, investigations happen, don't happen, proceed in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways, often not so wonderful ways. So it's Encouraging that there's a Trump appointee to potentially provide balance, but it's certainly no guarantee that the Hunter Biden investigation will be carried out in the way that most Americans would assume it would be and, and believe it should be.
0: What are some things Americans should be looking out for?
12: I think they should be looking out for the speed at which this investigation takes place. I mean, all of the basically all of the information, the laptop especially, uh, has been in the FBI's. The Department of Justice's possession for for now a matter of years, plural, uh, and so I don't I'm not sure how much more they have to learn before they determine whether an indictment um, is or whether they try to seek an indictment against Hunter Biden any other member of the family, including President Biden, uh, and we have to look follow along and see whether there are obvious uh, telltale signs of political interference. Uh, that, that could impact investigation and and bureaucratic sort of deep state interference uh, is is internally is the Department of Justice able to uh, conduct this investigation without um, warring factions? political partisan partisan factions, politicized factions within the department attempting to interfere.
0: We'll have to keep a close eye on this. And now the Biden administration is proposing a plan to deal with the expected surge of illegal immigrants at the border once Title 42 ends. Do you think that they'll be able to handle this?
12: The Biden administration will not be able to handle the border surge uh, because until very recently, they didn't really care about a surge. They, in fact, encouraged the surge. So, you know, they want they want Title 42 gone. The fact that it, it has been kept in place to this point has been helpful to them. Uh, just, you know, contrary to their wishes, but helpful to them, it has kept the numbers, the numbers are still high, but not as high as they would have been. So a combination of removing Title 42 and the likely Supreme Court overturning of the remaining Mexico policy of the Trump administration means that the two foundations of keeping the surge to a minimum Uh, will, will be gone sooner rather than later. The Biden administration will now have to deal finally fully with the results of its policy or lack of a policy on the border.
0: DHS is deploying more resources to agents at the border and they're working to expel illegal immigrants more quickly. Do you think this is going to make an impact?
12: If the new Department of Homeland Security plan is implemented fully, it will make some difference. But it's nothing like WHAT IS REQUIRED, IT'S it's NOTHING LIKE WHAT WAS IN PLACE BEFORE THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION TOOK OVER, RESPONSIBILITY FOR THE SOUTHERN BORDER. AND THERE ARE SO MANY uh, DYNAMICS THAT WORK BOTH INSIDE THE COUNTRY AND ALSO OUTSIDE, ENCOURAGING MORE AND MORE uh, PEOPLE to, TO ARRIVE AT THE BORDER, INCLUDING MOST RECENTLY UKRAINIANS um, FLEEING EUROPE, THAT IT'S HARD TO IMAGINE HOW THIS Um, I would say modest attempt at beefing up the American, uh, America's ability to police her southern border, how that is going to be anywhere near sufficient. It's necessary, but it is far
0: from sufficient. Patrick Basham from Washington, D.C., thank you so much for your analysis. My pleasure,
12: Kevin. Thank you.
0: The Oklahoma legislature on Thursday approved two bills that would ban virtually all abortions, The two bills are similar to laws passed in Texas last year. Oklahoma's Republican-led bills would take effect immediately if the governor signs them, as he has promised. This would give the state the strongest abortion laws in the U.S., banning all of them except in cases of medical emergency, rape, or incest. Earlier, the state's House of Representatives approved a separate piece of legislation to ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Governor Kevin Stitt, a Republican, said he would sign any anti-abortion legislation that reaches his desk. Oklahoma's four abortion clinics had been bracing for Thursday's legislative action, which could mean they must soon cease abortion services entirely. Ten-year-old Lily Peters was beaten and strangled. That's the latest on the disturbing case out of Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. The coroner shared what he found Thursday, confirming her death as a homicide. A 14-year-old boy has been arrested in her death, and he's facing a homicide charge along with two sexual assault charges. The DA said the boy told police he hit the little girl with a stick, strangled her to death, and then sexually assaulted her. She was found in the woods on Monday. He was arrested the next day and is set to face a judge next week. A judge in Miami has vacated the life sentence of a 55-year-old man. Prosecutors say he was wrongfully convicted because of mistaken identity in 1990. Thomas J. Rayner James said he felt wonderful as he left the courtroom Wednesday morning. He was flanked by his attorneys and family. James was convicted of the 1990 death of Francis McKinnon. An eyewitness told jurors she watched James gun down her stepfather during a robbery in his apartment. State Attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle filed a 90-page motion seeking to have the sentence vacated after years of successful reviews of the case. The premier of the British Virgin Islands was arrested in Miami on Thursday for alleged money laundering and conspiracy to import cocaine. That's according to a DEA complaint. Andrew Fahey was arrested at a Miami airport along with the managing director of the British Overseas Ports Authority. The DEA complaint said Fahi had agreed to allow an informant to use British Virgin Islands ports to ship cocaine in return for a payment of $500,000. The informant was posing as a member of Mexico's Sinaloa drug cartel. The arrest of Fahi was first disclosed by British Virgin Islands Governor John Rankin. The Food and Drug Administration wants to make drinks safer for children. Officials are calling for lead levels to be reduced in apple juice and other juice blends. Lead is a naturally occurring element, which means it can't be completely removed from the food supply. But the FDA says if the levels they recommend are taken, consumer exposure would be limited. They say establishing a 10 parts per billion level could result in close to a 50% reduction in lead exposure. This is part of the agency's Closer to Zero Action Plan which debuted in April 2021. Coming up, it's been 30 years since the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Over 50 people died during a six-day period triggered by a case of police brutality. Learn more on that in just a moment here on NTD News. Lawmakers have voted to postpone a pending new rule in New York City. That's after they overwhelmingly voted to pass it four months ago. If approved, the measure would require many ads for jobs in New York City to include salary ranges. It's an effort to give applicants a better shot at fair pay. But some businesses have concerns, and it's now on hold for the next five months. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more.
5: The debate marks a major test for a slate of pay transparency laws. And the answer seems simple to Brooklyn restaurant server, Elizabeth Stone.
13: Having all of these postings with different information, not knowing how much I could make to pay for my apartment, was like a real pain that I felt. And it was really challenging. And it kind of leads you to just accept the known versus go into the unknown or try and even bargain.
5: Stone has scoured job ads that are silent about pay leaving her wondering whether to try to move on from an employer she likes but wishes paid more, and feeling that she has no leverage to push for a raise.
13: I've seen postings that say weekly salary estimate is like $900 or something like that, something very specific. Um, and then others say like great environment, fun friendly,
5: New York City's new law applies only to employers with four or more workers, according to state Labor Department statistics that amounts to about one third of employers, but roughly 90 percent of workers in the city.
14: There's a hidden language in a salary. Uh, You know, you see that number. What does that mean? How many roommates are you going to have to have? You know, how far away from your office are you going to have to live and commute to be able to afford, you know, a decent quality of life?
5: For employers, the new law would also mean addressing pay gaps. Before you go out to market and comply with this law, um, you got to be
12: pretty sure that your house is in order in terms of how you're paying people currently.
5: But some businesses have presented concerns. Small companies and nonprofits worry they'll lose applicants over the disclosures, while some big corporations are uneasy about posting New York City-level salaries for jobs that could be done from lower-cost places. Some also fear a flood of resignations or demands for raises from current employees. Over the last four years, at least seven states from California to Connecticut and at least two cities beyond New York, Cincinnati, and Toledo, Ohio have considered similar laws. Andrew Thomas NTD News.
0: Today is the 30th anniversary of the beginning of the Los Angeles riots in 1992. The violence lasted six days and led to 53 deaths and an estimated $1 billion in property damage. Here are the details.
3: Rioting and looting started on April 29, 1992, when four LAPD officers were acquitted in the beating of Rodney King. King was drunk driving at high speeds on a freeway in March 1991 when the four officers pulled him over and repeatedly beat and kicked him. A bystander videotaped the incident, which was later broadcast on TV. During the riots, King made a famous plea for peace on TV.
10: People, I, um, I just,
13: I just want to say, you know, can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get
3: along? The riots left 53 dead and caused an estimated $1 billion in property damage. King's daughter, Laura King, reflected on the events in an interview earlier this week.
10: You know, my dad was given a speech to, um, to say, and, and he didn't. He chose to spoke from his heart, and I think that that's very prolific in addition to the words that he spoke that we still ask ourselves today. Some people joke about it, some people are serious about it, but obviously we can't all get along because we're still asking.
3: The name Rodney King later became synonymous with the use of excessive police force. This is what King's daughter says she feels about the rioting.
10: I don't condone rioting, but I understand it, you know, because it's like, it's like a toddler, you know. A toddler trying to communicate with you, and you're not listening to them properly. Well, they're going to throw a tantrum, tantrum, because you're not hearing them. So they don't know another way to c- connect with you. Um, and I don't, I don't believe in the writing. I don't, I'm, I don't support it. But I understand it.
3: Two of the LAPD officers were later convicted on federal charges of violating King's civil rights. A jury also ordered the city of Los Angeles to pay King 3.8 million dollars in damages.
0: A semi-truck with a flammable load exploded after crashing into another truck on the Ohio Turnpike in Lorain County on Wednesday night. A surveillance camera belonging to the Ohio Department of Transportation shows the moment when the truck erupted into a massive fireball. It also shows the aftermath with the destroyed vehicles. The Ohio Turnpike fully reopened Thursday following the accident. The Ohio State Highway Patrol did not report any injuries. Coming up, a new pilot school in northern Sweden offers the bulk of its classes on small electric aircraft. The Scandinavian country has committed to making all domestic flights operate without fossil fuels by 2030. An Italian company makes water for astronauts in the International Space Station and has plans to make water suitable for missions to the moon and Mars. We'll have all that and more for you in just a moment. An Egypt air flight that crashed in 2016 was likely caused by a pilot smoking a cigarette in the cockpit, according to a report. Egypt air flight MH-804 disappeared from radar in 2016 with 66 passengers and crew on board. There were no survivors. The confidential report concluded that the pilot lit a cigarette mid-flight. This caused oxygen that was leaking from his co-pilot's mask to start a fire. French aviation experts found the leak on the mask occurred after a valve had been placed in the incorrect position. Fifteen French citizens were on board the plane. The Paris Court of Appeals is currently investigating manslaughter charges. Norway's newly formed airline, Norse Atlantic, has begun selling tickets for budget transatlantic flights. The company hopes to succeed where its airline predecessors failed by leasing aircraft at rock-bottom rates. According to its reservation system, the first flight will take off in Oslo to New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport in June. While the favorable terms of the lease and the fuel efficiency of modern aircraft will give the company a cost advantage, a key question remains whether it can generate enough revenue to turn a profit. The airline industry is still concerned about the uncertainty of post-pandemic travel patterns, including the rising energy costs and travel restrictions, especially in Asia. The pandemic has brought the airline industry to its knees, and many companies were losing money. Norway's largest airline, Norwegian Air, even collapsed after axing its long-haul operations. Norwegian is now in talks with Norse, seeking the possibility of acting as a feeder service. A new pilot school in northern Sweden is pinning its hopes on the future of a mission-free flight. It's now offering the bulk of its aviation classes on small electric aircraft. That's in line with the Scandinavian country's commitment to making sure all domestic flights do not use fossil fuels by 2030. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more.
5: In a hangar in Skellefteå, northern Sweden, this aircraft is charging, getting ready to take flight. The small two-seater Pipistrel electric airplane is the first of its kind to be certified for basic flight training. Two battery packs give it a range of about 50 minutes. It's fully charged in about 30 minutes using renewable energy from a local provider.
12: Many persons are interested in flying, uh, but they're also interested in the technology in flying, and especially the green technology. We also think that the airlines are very interested in this green technology.
5: Green Flight Academy is set to begin classes this May. Students will be working towards an airline traffic pilot license which will allow them to fly private and commercial aircraft. The program takes about 20 months to complete, and using more sustainable aircraft could mean less environmental impact.
6: I mean, you still need to, to do those hours to be proficient and, and become a safe pilot before you can, can operate in, in an airline. So, of course, if you can do that in a, in a carbon-neutral way, that's I mean, that's amazing.
5: The new pilot school is one of several green-themed initiatives in and around the city of Scalefteo in part driven by the arrival of battery startup Northvolt. The city's airport is also lessening its environmental impact with fossil-free heating and electricity plus an electric vehicle fleet that transports passengers to the city center.
4: We are
12: using um, a green, certified green electricity from Schleifte We are heating the airport by bio pellets and we have we drive, uh, drive our vehicles by, by fossil free fuel or electricity. That's what we can do, quite easy. Why don't everybody do so?
5: Sweden has committed to making all its domestic flights fossil free by 2030. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Russian cosmonauts Oleg Artemyev and Denis Matveev ventured outside the International Space Station on Thursday to activate a robotic arm attached to the Nauka multipurpose laboratory module. Artemyev and Matveev, engineers from Roscosmos, exited the Russian module Poisk for a seven hour excursion. The main tasks of the spacewalk included the removal and jettison of thermal blankets covering the arm and the release of launch locks on it. Footage showed cosmonauts waving goodbye to the thermal blankets as they tossed them into space. According to NASA, they won't interfere with the station's orbit at any point. During a first spacewalk, the cosmonauts installed and connected a control panel for the European robotic arm, a 37-foot-long manipulator system mounted to the Nauka module. The arm will be used to move spacewalkers and payloads around the Russian segment of the ISS. This was the fifth spacewalk in Artemyev's career and the second for Matviv, as well as the 250th spacewalk for space station assembly, maintenance, and upgrades. For over 20 years, an Italian water company has been working to send its H2O into orbit and quench the thirst of busy astronauts. Now, the company is turning its attention deeper into space to the moon and Mars.
5: For over 20 years, SMAT has been working with Franco-Italian aerospace firm, Talis Alenia Space, to produce drinking water for astronauts aboard the International Space Station. But there may be a new mission on the horizon, serving upcoming crewed missions to the moon and Mars. We need to choose
2: elements that do not denature the water itself, but make it possible to conserve for long periods of time. The studies and research we are working on is to understand what are the best techniques available to produce space-bound water.
5: SMAT first sent a tank filled with its precious H2O to the International Space Station in 2008. While a mission in 2014 included three tanks of water prepared in these labs, the plant prepared two different types of water based on specific American and Russian
10: tastes. The production processes are also different. For the American water, we add almost exclusively only disinfectant, which is iodine, which is much more long-lasting compared to chlorine, which we use on Earth in a very limited manner. On the other hand, for the Russian crew, the disinfectant we use is silver ion that is added electrolytically to the water by melting ultra-high purity electrodes.
5: Over 2.5 gallons of source water is required to produce just two space-bound pints. Water treated for space requires more work, but the estimated price of up to nearly $21,000 per gallon is mainly due to transportation costs from Earth to space.
2: It's not about the cost of the water, because treating water for space compared to treating water for Earth is extremely expensive. But its final price is also due to the transport from Earth to space. Depending on its vector, whether we use a shuttle like we did at the beginning, or European vectors, we were talking about up to 50,000 euros per kilogram. So we are talking about impressive costs.
5: SMAT technicians are currently prepping water that will be able to avoid contamination for at least two years, the duration of a round trip to Mars. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Coming up, four Argentine friends cycled across some 10,000 miles to Qatar. They hope to support their country in a green way at the World Cup in November. A Los Angeles zoo welcomed the largest giraffe born in its history, standing more than six feet tall. And it's a big hit among visitors. Find out more here on NTD News. Australian Open champion Rafael Nadal is training today for his Madrid Open debut next week. He is set to return to the circuit after a month-long absence due to injury. The 35-year-old, who last played in the final of Indian Wells against Taylor Fritz on March 20th, suffered a stress fracture in his rib during the tournament. That forced him to miss clay court events in Monte Carlo and Barcelona. Top-seeded German player Alexander Zverev also attracted dozens of fans to his training session. After having lost to teenager wildcard Holger Ruhn at the BMW Open in Munich, the world number three will seek to return to glory in Madrid. Rising tennis star Carlos Alcaraz also intends to make an impact in this year's edition. The 18-year-old Spaniard captured the fourth title of his young career at the Barcelona Open final. There, he made the top ten for the first time in his career. The women's tournament began on Thursday, and the men's competition is due to begin on Tuesday. Four Argentinian friends will cycle 10,500 kilometers from South Africa to Qatar to support their country at the World Cup in November. The initiative will also lead to 10,500 new trees being planted in their homeland. Lucas Ledesma, Leandro Pigi, Silvio Gatti, and Sebastian Rodriguez are from the province of Cordoba in Argentina. They will start cycling on May 15th from Cape Town to Doha. The journey will cross 15 countries on two continents in six months. Argentina will play their first match at this year's tournament on November 22nd against Saudi Arabia. For Ledesma's adventure, he will be joined by a documentary maker, a writer, and a travel agent. 31-year-old PG said the trip is not just getting on your bike and pedaling. There is plenty of preparation. There is planning for months and sitting down to find out what is happening in each country. Besides watching the matches, the trip aims to help the environment. Each kilometer traveled will be marked by the planting of a tree in the mountains of Cordoba. A 64-year-old woman is defying her age She's competing in a sport that is mostly dominated by younger women, and she's excelling at it. Here's more.
13: Most competitive ice skaters retire from competition in their late 20s, but not Cindy Krause from Crystal Lake, Illinois. She's turned her childhood hobby into a flourishing passion, and at 64, she's on top of her game.
14: I actually skated recreationally when I was a child up until I was 14 and then I was off the ice for almost 35 years and so when I came back to the ice uh, I was 47. Picking up a physical sport at middle age is no small feat. I constantly have to um, work on my flexibility. You know the younger women and, and men come in and it's amazing they can just pick their legs up over their heads.
13: Falling on the ice is another challenge, but to Krauss it's just an opportunity to get better.
14: I'm an expert at falling. Um, that's really one of the keys to skating. You need to not be afraid. Um, falling is just fine and getting up is just great. So, you know, you just really learn to relax into it. Skating is just so enjoyable though. So uh, every, every little challenge was really just an opportunity to learn more and to, to do more.
13: Enjoying figure skating is one thing, but Krauss wants to stay motivated. Her coach suggested competition.
14: At the competitive level, it is quite demanding, and it's a very physical sport. Um, You have to have balance and speed. You have to have agility and flexibility. You need power. You need stamina and endurance.
13: Anything is possible when you have the heart for it. In April, Krauss won first place in the US Adult Gold Ladies Free Skate competition, which is for the age group between 55 and 65 years old. She was also ranked number 7 in Championship Adult Gold Ladies competing with women in their 20s and 30s.
14: Skating is my zen. Skating puts me into that mode of uh, the rest of the world just disappears and melts away. And um, there's just this feeling of freedom that you have, that you can do anything.
13: Cindy Krause has proven one thing, you're never too old to learn and succeed if you have the passion to do it.
0: We often discuss how diets rich in fruits and vegetables are good for your health, So what's a good average amount to aim for? Here's Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body.
8: A recent study answered the question of daily quantities of fruits and vegetables necessary for optimum health. The results were gathered from dozens of studies across the world. Around 2 million of the respondents have been followed for 30 years. The people who ate five servings per day lowered their risks of heart disease, stroke, cancer and respiratory disease. Over countless ages, fruit and vegetables have provided many sources of nutrients strongly linked to good health. The heart and blood vessels benefit from potassium, magnesium, fibre and antioxidants. Antioxidants are thought to play a role in preventing cancer. If you want to go for vitamin C rich fruit and veg, your biggest sources are kale, spinach, citrus, berries and carrots. How much you eat on average is the key aspect to get right. There are no major diet changes required either. For example, breakfast could be a bowl of cereal with some blueberries or perhaps eggs sautéed with tomatoes, onions, and spinach. For lunch, try a salad with kale, grapefruit chunks, and red peppers. For snacks, try carrots and pine nuts, or any sort of nuts, or a cup of yogurt with strawberries, or a smoothie with kale and mango. At dinner, include steamed broccoli or yellow squash and zucchini. Add other raw veggies from the crisper, Dot them with chunks of protein such as grilled chicken or fish. Dessert is really simple. Try fresh or frozen fruit with a dab of frozen yogurt. Remember, try to aim for five servings a day. Aim for variety to get the best mix of vitamins, minerals and other beneficial nutrients. Eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables is a wonderful health habit to adopt. Over time, you'll get better and better at choosing high-quality produce. You'll know how to pick the sweetest fruits and the freshest veggies.
0: A replacement birthday cake was given to an Italian woman 77 years after it was stolen.
6: Happy birthday dear Mary, happy birthday.
0: Mary Mione's mother baked her a cake in April of 1945 for her 13th birthday. It just happened to be on the same day when U.S. troops arrived in her hometown of Vicenza after fighting the Germans during World War II. The cake was cooling off on a windowsill and at some point was taken by the Americans, never to be seen again. On Thursday, American soldiers presented Mione, who turns 90 on Friday, for his placement cake. In a press release, Mione said she and her family will celebrate the day and enjoy the dessert. The Los Angeles Zoo has a newborn giraffe and he's proving a big hit with visitors. The week old calf was unveiled to the public on Thursday. The calf was born on April 8th to 10 year old parents Zainabu and Philip. The two already share another youngster. Right now, the baby is still unnamed. It weighed 170 pounds at birth and clocked in at six feet seven inches tall. That's a record for the largest calf to be born in the zoo's history. He's Zainabu's fourth offspring and Philip's sixth. Visitors who live nearby stop at the zoo almost every day. I was surprised. You know, it's
7: delightful. Who doesn't want to have a new baby, right? Yes. No, it's delightful.
9: Who else do you think is in the giraffe family? A papa right there.
4: Uh huh. Is he's tall? Yes.
1: Who else? Mm, a mama right there, and I guess that
10: one is a baby.
0: But how does a baby drop even? How does a baby drop even climb out of his mom? She just
10: she comes out of her
13: out of her belly, and then she stands up right away. How you took a, a long time draft? to stand up. Yeah. That that baby when comes out and it's ready baby, to run.
10: I I couldn't even run. Nope.
11: No, I didn't know he'd be out today, so I saw he was born a few weeks ago, but we were just planning on coming today, so it's a nice surprise. (laughs) He's very cute.
0: Zainabu carried the calf for 15 months before going into labor, which lasted around three hours. Zookeepers say she will be ready to reproduce again in about three to six months. When fully grown, the new calf could reach up to 17 feet in height and weigh as much as 2,700 pounds. But before that happens he's likely to be moved from his family to start one of his own. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.